You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. We say, wait a minute, he's already come. However, yes, you are right. However, it is always a good thing to stop and pause and stand back just a bit and say, God, how can my heart be ready for this celebration that's coming? How, how can I be there? How can this be more than just a holiday that, that is marked by sales um, and coupons and, and what am I going to, and worries about who am I getting what and what am I getting who, all that kind of stuff. It's got to be more than that. And, and yet we, sometimes we overlook this whole idea of Jesus coming and, as a big thing. Because we worry about all those other pieces, don't we? Well, we, um, we celebrated a birthday yesterday at our house. And uh, I'm not going to tell you any more, but with that comes preparation. When we celebrate the birth of Jesus, it ought to come with Preparation. And so this, this whole season um, is marked by that. And in Malachi, at the very end of his prophecy in chapter 4 of Malachi, um, he's going to get into some things. And remember that Malachi is essentially a book of preparation. It's a book that reminds us of not just that Jesus is coming, but what, what is part of that or, or what does that encompass? And so when we get to the end of Malachi, there's this whole idea of paying attention. So you, you've been in, in classrooms where, and maybe you haven't, but I've been in classrooms uh, where you're sitting there and you're being bored to death. And in the middle of that, the teacher recognizing after this long thing and watching you, the teacher just goes... And so you guys haven't even been in here five minutes of me talking, and that woke you up, which is a little scary to me. So, ow. Um, it's, it's, a, it's about preparation. It's about waking up. And chapter four of Malachi starts with a waking up kind of passage, a waking up kind of phrase. Look, look at it. In chapter four, it says, for behold, we can just stop there. Because it's that idea of seeing. It's, it's the idea of, hey, look at this. And so when we look at that, we, we understand that Malachi has a message that he wants us to see. And it's not that he didn't want us to read chapters 1 through 3. It's getting down to the end. And when you get to the end, it's one of those desperation kind of moves. Pay attention. Listen up. Look up. Some of you are going, Okay. That's what Malachi is saying here. He said, pay attention, look up, behold. It's, the, it's that idea that we have when, when a child wants your attention. You know, they, they come at you and they, they may say, hey, look at me, look at this. Hey, look what I'm doing. I'm over here. Can you pay attention? It's that kind of thing. And so Malachi is in that spot where he's wanting us to pay attention. And he's bringing words of judgment and hope. Wanting the nation to look on this and behold, to pay attention. Uh, the, the CSB, Christian Standard, 
reads it like it says, look. So the nation had strayed, but God did not relinquish his quest to restore a nation. And he wanted more than restoring a nation. He wanted their hearts to be restored and changed. And so Malachi is coming at this with a little bit of desperation in his voice. And, and we learned last week that God desires our hearts to be open to his maturing and his restoration or restoring work in our lives. That's God's desire for us. And so Malachi's final words, they usher in what we consider to be a period of silence or, or quietness on God's part. But it's really this, this gap between speaking very, very um, distinctly to a nation and then pulling back for a ways until the coming of that, pre that prepared John the Baptist and then the coming of the Messiah. It's almost like, uh, I don't know if you've ever had it. Um, when I was growing up, I had Hot Wheels and, and different cars and everything. And um, there, was, there was one kind of car that you would just put it down and you would pull it back and it would create this tension. It was like winding up a little rubber band. And then you would let it go and it would take off on its own. And that's kind of this idea here in Malachi where it's pulling back and saying, it's, it's, we're getting ready, we're getting ready, getting ready, and all of a sudden we're going to let go and the Messiah is going to show up on the scene to present what would be salvation for his people and for us. And so these words that Malachi is giving us are words of descriptive of judgment, but they're also words that are prescriptive of hope. And we could read this and be super bummed out or, or depressed when we start reading some of this stuff because when you look at it, there, there are two distinct sides to this equation that Malachi's putting out in front of the people. One side of that coin is this side of judgment, but on the other side of that coin is, is hope. And the nation of Israel is going to have to listen to both because they're in a spot where they've strayed away from God. And Malachi is calling them back. This word behold that starts Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 is something that shows up twice in this passage. So, so if we go back and we just look at the context getting to the place of behold. If we look at the context in chapter 3, it says in verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. So we, we learn there's a book of remembrance. And, it's, and in verse 17, it says, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. You remember, Lord of hosts was Lord of armies. He was mighty. He was majestic. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. They were living at a time where it was really hard to distinguish between those that belonged to him and those that didn't belong because it seemed the whole culture was going the same direction away from God. And Malachi was calling them back and saying, it's time for you to repent. 
It's time for you to come back to me. And it will become distinguishable. We live in a culture that is exactly like that. We live in a culture where the distinction between those that are following Christ and those that are not following Christ is getting wider. The gap is getting bigger. We went to a movie last night, and just in the previews, there was a commercial that came up in the previews, and it started flashing things up on the screen, and it was a commercial that you'll probably end up seeing on TV, and you're going, I don't ascribe to that, 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 and that. Because it does not represent me and my culture. Yet culture says, You're, you encompass all this. And what we're seeing is this, despair, this, this gap between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. And it widening. And if we're going to follow Christ, understand that your lives will likely, if, if Jesus doesn't come back or you don't die first, your life will likely be put on the line because of the cause of Christ. I don't know why we would think that our lives wouldn't be at stake when we look at other countries whose, whose believers go to death because of their belief. We think we're immune to that. That could change. And so there might likely be a time in our life where if somebody asks you, do you follow Christ? They may walk up to you and say, do you follow Christ? And you're going to have to make a decision whether you're going to proclaim him or not proclaim him. And it will be the difference between life and death. Malachi in this is, is laying this out. It says there will be a difference between those that are following God and those who are not following God. And God is giving this proclamation or pronouncement in Scripture, I'm going to do this. So if we look at it, it says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. When God makes a proclamation, we have to understand, his proclamations are true. They're right. And so when he makes this statement that this is going to happen, we can count on it. We may not like it. We've talked about liking things in Scripture before. We may not like it, but that doesn't make it untrue. If we could take all the things out of Scripture that we don't like, Following this book would be pretty easy, wouldn't it? In, in fact, if God would choose, si choose sides with regards to football games, we'd be much better off, wouldn't we? Then we know who to root for. Right now we're kind of stuck, right? Who does God root for? I'm praying he, root, he blesses this team or whatever. So God makes pronouncements in Scripture. He says, I'm going to do something. You remember Israel and Egypt. And that whole idea of the exodus and the plagues prior to the Passover and, and all that, I will do this. Or David shall be king, but Solomon's going to build the temple. And then the disobedience that led to the nation being taken off in exile. It's no different when God makes a proclamation about the coming of the Messiah. That he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And you better watch out. You better look forward. 
And as a nation, there are two parts to this. There's the part that says, yes, the Messiah is coming. And then there's another part that says, whoa, the Messiah is coming. What am I going to do when God steps on the scene? So let's read Malachi chapter 4. It says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not leave them, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its, in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant? Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And then Malachi ends with this. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that you would help us to understand not just Malachi's passion, but help us to understand the words that Malachi is putting out for the nation to consider and and think about, but also act on. And Father, as we look at this, we know that we live in a culture that seems to be going further away from you instead of closer to you. And at the same time, we proclaim you those of us who have accepted Christ, we, we say that we belong to you as your people. And so God, maybe you're calling us back. Maybe you're calling us in this preparation time to consider what it means to follow Christ and to give up everything to do such. And so God, teach us this morning as we look at this passage that you would be glorified in our listening, that you'd be glorified in our response and that it would bring you honor and praise to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Malachi chapter 4 starts with this, this shocking description of judgment. So the first, first thing in your outline is a shocking description of judgment. Um, And there are different interpretations from Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Um, Some talk, think that it may have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Some think it it goes all the way to the end of the age, what we read about in Revelation. And and it really can mean any of that. Well, what we see in chapter 4, verse 1 is that God is going to bring judgment. And His judgment is true. Look what it says. The day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. So what is is the arrogant and evildoer? If you were to break that down or put it in other words, essentially it would mean those that are proud but guilty. Or maybe proud and guilty. Boasting of 
being able to do wrong and getting away with it. Standing in the face of God and saying, God, you obviously don't care because what I'm doing is not right, but you seem to be blessing anyways. That's arrogant and proud. 1 Corinthians 5.2 says this, and you are in, in Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes, and you are inflated with pride. Instead of being filled with grief so that he who has committed the act might be removed from your congregation. Essentially, he says, hey, look, you are doing this and you're proud of it. You're disobeying God and you're proud of it. You say, hey, look what I'm getting away with. That's the attitude. Essentially, we're not immune to the same dilemma, are we? We can do that. We don't have Paul writing to us, particularly saying, hey, you at Ebenezer, you're proud and, and you're, you're doing things that are not godly and you love it. We don't have that, but we could read into this and say, hey, maybe we are. Maybe there are times when we think we're getting away with something and God's not bringing judgment, so it must be okay. We're not immune to the same dilemma of drifting away from God. Our natural tendency is to choose our own pride and self-sufficiency, even boasting in our independence from God. How much of what we do in our Sunday school classes or worship can be done without God's presence? First Corinthians 10 Verse 11 and 12 says, Now these things happened to them as examples, and talking about what happened to the nation of Israel. And they were written as a warning to us, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. And then the verse right after that about temptation and we, we love to quote those kind of verses, but understand that the context of, of all of that was a, a people that were drifting away from God and proud of it. And God brought judgment, and what Paul reminds them of and reminds us of is that God's judgment is sure, but when we look back at that judgment, we have to consider that God is still calling us to return to Him. And in that call is this understanding that as God brought judgment there, God can bring judgment on us. Malachi uses the word chaff. It just means stubble or um, it has the idea of being useless. It says it will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. That word set them ablaze means to set them ablaze. It's the thing that sometimes if we have a really old building, we say, man, I wish that would catch fire. It's, it's just being done away with. The second part of that is probably more critical to this, that neither root nor branch, we, we look at that and we go, I don't even know what that means. It just means that it's not for restoration, it is for destruction. That there's not going to be any evidence left when God is done with his judgment. When we lived in Florida, occasionally we'd have 
fires that would run through some of the, some of the areas, some of the forests in, in Florida. And as they would come through, and where we lived, we weren't susceptible to them really close to us, but the smoke would blow over front, depending on which way the winds were blowing in Florida. But, but you knew that when those things burned, when everything was said and done, is those palmetto bushes and the, the vegetation would come back. What, what, Paul, or what Malachi is describing here is it is caught on fire and burned all the way to the root where the vegetation is not coming back. There will be no root, no branch, no covering left when God is done with executing his wrath or his judgment. There's a difference between the fire in Malachi 4 and the fire that's in Malachi 3.2. The fire in Malachi 3.2 is a refining fire, a purifying fire. It's the fire that although we don't like going through it, we know that it's maturing us and getting us to the place that we are more, of more value. Not that God doesn't, not that God places value on things other than what brings him glory. Maybe I didn't say that right. God values what brings him glory. And God wants to mature us in a way that our lives reflect his character. And so in Malachi 3, 2, it's a refining fire, not a destructive fire. We may even feel like at times God is bringing on us a destructive type fire. But God never does that with his kids. He's always looking for us to be more mature in our life in Christ. Malachi is calling out the difference between those that belong to him and those that don't belong to him. Malachi 4.3 talks about how this goes down. It says, you, and talk about the, the ones that are mentioned in verse 2. We'll just skip down to 3. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be like ashes under the soles of your, of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. They'll be of no consequence. They'll be underfoot. You see, in God's timing, this happens. And we can look at wickedness around us and, and attempt to judge it, but we are not judged like God is judged. So we must relinquish our, our desire to, to cast or, or proclaim judgment on those that don't belong to Christ. God will take care of that. Our job is to love them with a love that exemplifies the character of Christ. So when we go to Hillsborough tonight, to be part of that parade, you may see things in the parade. You say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Understand that they're far from God and they, don't have, they may not have a relationship with Christ. They're just doing what is natural because of no relationship to Christ. So why should we expect attitudes and actions different from what Satan would promote in places like that? We have the opportunity to step into that and say, God loves you with a love that is incredible. And he will preserve you forever through his son. God calls. He calls us into a safe zone. You, you've been there where you're sitting in the pool and calling a child to jump in. You know it's safe for them. 
but you call them, and that's what God calls us in to into a place that seemingly is tough to be in, but it's a place of safety. Malachi 4.2, we'll jump back to that because this is where those who are in Christ, this is where we see and we go, oh, man, I love this. It says, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Second thing in our outline this morning is we find in Malachi is a soothing proclamation of hope. This idea of fearing God's name, what does that mean? In, in one sense, it's a reverence. It's a, it's a respect. In another sense, it's, it's actually fear because we understand that God has the ability to bring on wrath. And His wrath is not, nothing like what we could possibly imagine. I remember growing up and I had a dad that was in charge. And when my dad said something, you just did it. You didn't argue. My, when my dad said, go take out the garbage or whatever it happened to be, it's like, yes, sir. And he wasn't, he wasn't mean about it. He just said, this is the way it is. You're my son and you're going to do what I ask you to do. And, and that, was, that was a healthy fear. It kept me out of a lot of trouble. Just knowing that my dad was going to be on the back end of my disobedience. And it was, going to re, it was going to end up on the back end of Bob. There's no argument. But in this passage, what we see is this, this idea of what Jesus brings to the table. As we trust him, it says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I want to show you two pictures. There's the first one. Ah, you're there. There's the first one. Now, when we talk about rising, this is what the second one looks like. There it is. It's beautiful, isn't it? You know what that brings? The sun coming up and watching that, it brings warmth, doesn't it? It brings light to the table. In this case, the whole coast. But it brings light and warmth. And, and, and we look at that and we say, there's a surety about the sunrise that we can count on. So when the, when the meteorologist says the sun is going to rise at 7.07 in the morning, we can go down to the coast and stand on the edge of the beach and look and, and say, okay, it's 7.06, it's not there yet. 7.07, we start to see it peak just out of the water, just a little bit. It's not in the water, but just over the horizon. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a cool thing. And when Malachi says the sun of righteousness will rise with healing its wings, it comes with something. There's a surety about God showing up on the scene. It's the idea that we read about in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him and apart from Him. Not one thing was that... Not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it or, or even comprehend it. 
what Malachi is sharing here is he says, there's a surety about Jesus coming. And it comes with healing. It's medicinal. It's the touch of righteousness. When the touch of righteousness from Jesus comes into our life, it brings a healing element to where we're at. And so many of us, we deal with things where we need healing. And it may be physical, but it may be emotional. It may be spiritual. And what Malachi is saying is the sterilized touch comes with healing with no possibility of infection. Then the second part of this verse, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. I, I'd, I'd Googled that because I just wanted to see. I was like, I'm, I'm not a farm kid. I'm a, I'm a city slicker. Okay, so I'm, I'm not that familiar. I've been around some farms, but, but I've not been like on a farm. I haven't had to wear the boots. You know what I mean? And, and what, what he's saying is, is you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. When I looked at the video, it was that, that young calf being loosed from a stall and going out into the middle of a field and just jumping around, just bouncing. I'm not going to show you exactly what that looks like, but I mean, just, just happy. Happy to not have the confines. You think about what the stall is. It's a place where everything that a cow does ends up in a confined area. And you can put your imagination to that all you want. But that's where they live. And when they're loosed from the stall, they find enjoyment. And so this whole idea of moving from what is dirty and confined beyond the stall to joy and freedom. So I want to ask, I want to ask you just very quickly. How did your life change when you came to know Christ? Have you come to know Christ? Was it one of those things where you said, the burden of my sin is no longer on my shoulders and on my heart and in my brain, but God has taken that away and it has come with joy and freedom because I've trusted Him. That's the feeling. You can go back to that. That's the feeling of being free, just like that, that calf that is released from the stall. The third part of our outline this morning that Malachi gives us is a sound prescription for a future. Malachi 4, 4 through 6 says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and, statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Now, what are we supposed to remember? What are they supposed to remember? Because they understood this. They understood what the statutes and ordinances that were given to, to Moses, they understood what those were. Mary, it's not very far removed from them proclaiming, this is our pledge to you, God. Remember, we go back to Nehemiah chapter 10. This is our pledge to you, God, that we're going to do all these things according to your word. And then... Nehemiah leaves, they stray, Malachi prophesies, and it seems like they've forgotten what those statutes and ordinances were. Just, they weren't mindful of them anymore. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9 says, These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Now there are some external things that go with that, but where does it start? 
Starts in the heart. Why would God say that? Why would that be the prescription for living a life that belongs to Christ? Because you can put on all the externals. You can get all dressed up for church, put on all the externals, and it look okay to everybody else, but you know deep down in your heart that it is not. The saddest thing in church, saddest part of any church, is the idea that there are folks that just get dressed up to show up and they have no relationship with God and they think that's okay. Debbie's testimony from prior to being saved was, I went to church all the time. And when she went on a retreat and witnessed some people that were in love with Jesus, she realized she didn't have that. You may be in this place this morning where you put on all the garb that says, I belong to church, but it's not on your heart or in your heart. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How often was God's word supposed to be in front of them? All the time on the outside but all the time on the inside. See, the, pre- the prescription had this external element to it, but the external element was there to keep the hearts in line with what the internal element ought to be. That idea of my life is in Christ, my life is given to Christ, and I'm going to have these external things that will help me remember what it means to follow Christ. And so I'm going to look at God's Word. I'm going to study it. I'm going to be in a small group and in church with that accountability and that learning, that learning part of growing in my faith. I'm going to have some of those external pieces. But it's mostly to keep my heart in check because my heart has, has the tendency to drift. It's the same as taking medication from a doctor and give you medication. But if you don't take it, it doesn't do much good for you. So why does the law matter? There's three things. The law matters. It it helps us to see our need for God. It helps us to see our need for God. Galatians 3, 23 and 24 says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Paul's argument in Galatians was the law is there, yes, but the law helped you to see what your need was. The law didn't save you. Could do all the external things, but it wasn't going to save you. So it helps us to see our need for God. The second thing, it helps us to see God's love for us. Helps us to see 
God's love for us. When we went to the beach this summer, one of my children, and I, I may have already told you this, forgive me if you remember it and you don't want to hear it again. But one of my children, as we were throwing a football in the water, decided he'd throw it just out a little further. And so I went after it. Well, I went after it because I wanted the football. It was the thing to do, right? Not during a rip current. And so the, the lifeguard that was standing there, he watched and he watched and, and I grabbed it. And as soon as I grabbed it, he was there at the edge of the water blowing the whistle at me. Saying, eh, bring it on, bring it back in, boy. Wait a minute, you're, you're 20 years old. Tell me what to do. Yeah. He knew what was best for me. He said, don't, don't go any further. You float. You can go a long way. He was pulling it back in. And, and what, what God's law does is it helps us to understand there is a place where we don't know, need to go beyond this place because there is destruction there. It's those guardrails. It's that, that spot where God's law, law calls us back to a place of safety. Third thing, it helps us to maintain intimacy or fellowship with God. Just think about this example. If this, this one, one phrase, thou shalt not steal. Okay, so far so good, right? We have a problem with that. We, we look at that and we say, yeah, shouldn't steal. That just makes sense, right? When we, when we violate that, what does that mean? We steal it because we want something, right? But, but it really is a shift in priorities. It's saying what we want is something that we want, and it doesn't seem that God's going to provide it. Therefore, we will take it. And it could, be, it could be as simple as a piece of gum or a piece of candy. I did that in a, in a Ben Franklin five and dime when I was a kid. I took a piece of candy and I went, you know, it just, just kind of slid it in. I felt so stinking guilty that I, I ended up telling my parents I had to go back to the store and apologize to the, to the manager at the store. But it was because I wanted something that I didn't think was going to get provided for me. And it's not that we're to have an entitlement mentality about what God owes us. It's the understanding that God's, God provides for what we need. Matthew 6, 25 through 34 goes through all of that. But if we just look at two verses in that, in chapter 6, starting in verse 32, it says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows what you need, that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's interesting when you read that, that, those two verses in another in another version, it says, it says, for the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. Oh, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you can't provide for me. Therefore, I must provide for me. And I'm putting something else, namely me, on the top of the heap instead of you. I'm putting myself on the throne and not you. We have to understand that if we're going to maintain intimacy with God, some of it, it has to do with obedience to God's commands. 
It's the guardrails that, that keep our fellowship with him and our right perspective of who God is in check. So the sweet spot is to recognize our dependence on God and his incredible care. It means trusting him. And the nation that Malachi prophesied to is very similar to our nation in that we vacillate between trusting God and not trusting God, which tend to go back and forth. And we seek to avoid the trap of trusting God in, or we need to avoid the trap of trusting in anything but God. In this passage, it says to look ahead. what it says behold I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord he's going to send this great and terrible has the idea of a magnitude that we just can't perceive and he's sending Elijah in front that that forerunner to get ready for the Messiah and then Verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. What's Malachi even talking about here as he finishes this up? Why is this such a big deal? Because children and their fathers were on different pages. They were on different pages in theology. May have been a school of thought that they were following. Remember, they would fall under certain teachers, and, and those schools of thought would be different. That was one place, but there was there were also allegiances. They were intermarrying with, with others, and there was a, this mingling of cultures. And so there was not this distinction of God's people as God's people. And what Malachi is saying is that when Jesus comes, going to kind of pull it all together, bring it back in a funnel and, and get it to the place where children and their fathers are on the same page because they've given their life to Christ. So what is God saying through the prophet or the messenger Malachi to us? As we enter this Advent season, it's a season full of hope, love, joy, peace. We kind of even see that on the front of our bulletin. But what does God want us to consider? So what's next? So if I were to come over here and I'd say, okay, we're entering Advent. You guys, right here. You guys, what's next? Not like what's this afternoon, like, like what's for lunch. What's next spiritually for you? Where are you going? And how's your preparation? If I, if I ask anybody else in this, in this room, and you can put them on the spot, they can put you on the spot. We could ask the same thing over somewhere else in here. How's your preparation for Jesus' return? And another way we've put that over the last several weeks is, what is the condition of your heart? Where is your heart? Is it ready? We've talked about taking action, and we've said that every week in this series, we're going to have some action steps. So the first one is to recognize this world as temporary. Recognize this world as temporary. And you go, yeah, I get that. If this world is temporary, my life is temporary. 
Scripture says that, that if, if I live beyond 70-something years old, I'm doing really good. Or 110, I'm doing really, really good. This life is temporary, yet at Christmas we're bombarded with a worldview that is opposite what Scripture would teach. And we're just as guilty as anybody else of substituting a worldview that is biblical for a worldview that goes with our culture. So recognize this world is temporary. The first thing we got to do is just think about that. Second thing is, is, and this isn't even, this is not in your notes. You're going to have to kind of squeeze it in there, is to reorient our thoughts to God's thoughts. Reorient our thoughts to God's thoughts. How do we do that? Well, we spend time in His Word. God, what are you thinking? What do you think about the stuff that I live in right now? Spend time in His Word more than spending time on social media or looking at ad campaigns that want you to buy something during Christmas. Say, oh man. Reorient our thoughts to God's thoughts. A.W. Tozier writes this, and only the second part's going to show up on the screen. It says, but the God we must see is not, is not the unit you, yeah, utilitarian God who is having such a run of popularity today, whose chief claim to men's attention is his ability to bring them, bring them success in their various undertakings and who, for that reason, is being cajoled and flattered by everyone who wants a favor. You understand what Tozer's saying? Essentially, what he says is, we treat God like Santa Claus. That's the way of the culture. If we're going to have anything to do with God at all. Then he goes on to say, he says, the God we must learn to know is the majesty of heaven. In the heavens, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the only wise God, our Savior. Tozer's book reminds us of the majesty of God. And when we talk about Advent and Jesus coming back, we're talking about the God of all creation coming as God with us. All that majesty coming in the form of a baby. There is great hope in Christ. In fact, that is the only place to find hope is in Christ. your greatest hope is a better parking space at Walmart, you are woefully short of what God wants for your life. So what's the condition of your heart? Third thing is to reinvest your life in, in the eternal and what is going to last. And so we can jump into to Christmas and ask the question, what will you spend this Christmas? What will you spend on things that will last? And I'm not talking buying, about buying the better thing versus the, 
non-better thing. Like jumping up from a, well, I don't want to get into brands. But you know, okay, I'm going to spend 50 extra dollars because I think it'll last longer. It's not what I'm talking about. Talking about eternal. Reinvest your life in what is eternal. So we go back to what's the condition of your heart. And that's what we get to wrestle with. Malachi was encouraging them, encouraging the nation to come back to God. And I think Malachi had this ability to see and say, you know, there's going to be a period of time where it's going to seem like God is far off. The culture around you does not represent God at all. But you. But you. But the Son of Righteousness rising with healing in His wings will bring forth a joy that can only be expressed in something that is free because of Christ. How will you approach Christmas? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. 